Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And which they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past. I'm Sarah Ift Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined once again by Media Evil's resident Doctor Who expert, Lily Bonneman, to talk about our first episode from the uh, Doctor Who reboot series, The Shakespeare Code. So, Lily, welcome. That's good. Good to be here. Yeah, we're, we're uh, in in honor of the uh, Doctor Who 60th anniversary, with which, uh, if I'm counting correctly, we are releasing the week of. What is the 60th anniversary? November 23rd. Oh, yes. Then actually that works really precisely right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I planned this. <laughs> Good. Good job. Uh, yes. I'm glad somebody so, did. So, yeah, we are. I, I deliberately made our first foray into the new series line up with the 60th because uh, anniversaries. So, yeah. It's uh, exciting. I feel like. Most viewers uh, today, especially like younger than a certain age, like the new series is definitely what they're more familiar with Mm -hmm. compared to the classics that we have been watching. Yeah, I feel like uh, David Tennant, who I had not really... He is not the the doctor is not the role I first associate with him, but I understand that it is for the vast majority of people. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, if I had a nickel for every time David Tennant has played a character who is over 800 years old but doesn't look it, I would have at least uh-huh. four nickels, which isn't a lot, but it's 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 an unusually large number of nickels. <laughs> it's more than you'd think. All right, so, so Crowley is the one that immediately jumps out to me because I uh, just watched uh, the I just watched the second season of Good Omens relatively recently. Uh, what are the other ones? Well, there's Hu Yang from Star Wars. Oh, yes. I also just watched that and forgot that it was him because <laughs> it's not his face. Yeah. And uh, from something that has been covered on this podcast, he is Brimsythe the Iron Doom from Legend of Vox Machina. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, so David David Tennant. Mm-hmm. Constantly playing, uh, playing ancient beings. Yep, he has a type. Yes. So, yes, so we're talking today about the Shakespeare Code, which is uh, Series 3, Episode 2 of that uh, of that new uh, new reboot series. Yep. And we've, of course, got David Tennant as the 10th Doctor. We have uh, Freema Ajaman as Martha Jones. The things I have seen her in include uh, Sense8 and The Matrix Resurrections. She seems to be uh, working with the Wachowskis a lot these days. Hmm. Okay but I don't know anything else particularly about her. 
And also I wanted to mention the names of the two other actors who have a a pretty central role in this particular episode. So Dean Lennox Kelly as Shakespeare and Christina Cole as Lilith, but I have not seen either of them in anything. Yeah. They're, they're not like big star names. They are like, Hey, we're going to play a role in one episode of a television show type actors. Yeah. Uh Yeah. They do a good job though. Oh yeah, no, I think uh, all all good performances, uh, and uh, and I will say I thought this episode was a lot of fun. I'm intro- I'm looking forward to discussing it. Mm-hmm. It starts actually with uh, we actually meet Lilith, our uh, one of our witches, before we meet uh, before we get to see the Doctor. Lilith is uh, speaking in what is like hilariously like actually Shakespearean English to this uh, this paramour of hers. You know, like, very funny, because obviously, even though, like, Shakespeare obviously, like, speaks Elizabeth, like, Shakespeare is, like, writing in Elizabethan English, the way that Shakespeare writes is not the way, like, normal people just have conversations. Yeah. Um, But it very much is in, like, this scene. But I guess that's arguably explained by, like, some sort of spell situation involving this particular individual. But yes, so we we start with uh, with this couple. He gets uh, invited inside, gets very excited that uh, they're they're finally going to have sex for the first time. And then he comes in and is like, your house is uh, disgusting and upsetting. (laughs) Yeah, they've got they got the cauldron and the other like witchy sort of accoutrement all over the walls and Yep. So it's a uh, it's a pretty creepy looking location, and uh, as she then and uh, you know and she then uh, changes from her beautiful youthful form into uh, a older and less stereotypically attractive form, and one that more uh, fits with your sort of stereotypical idea of what a witch looks like. It's, it's, and... it's very it's very Buffy the Vampire Slayer vampire yeah. game face. Yes, yes, uh, which is also the vibe of uh, the women that she introduces as her two mothers. And she has this line, she's like, oh, lovers should meet one another's parents. Uh, <laughs> yes. And introduces <laughs> introduces her boyfriend to Mother Doomfinger and Mother Bloodtide. Nice, good, normal names. Yeah. And then they all eat him. Yep. So things are uh, not going well for this young man, but that doesn't matter. We'll never see him again. <laughs> Because uh, he's been eaten. Because he's been eaten. And uh, in this context, and also is like not relevant to the plot, except insofar as Lilith will, of course, be, and, uh, and Doomfinger and Bloodtide will, of course, be our uh, central alien antagonists. Mm-hmm. At this point, so the doctor uh, has told this one, Martha, that he's going to take her on just one trip in the TARDIS. Uh, do you have context for yes. uh, what's going on at this stage? Yes, yes, I do. For most of the new series to this point, this is the 30th episode of of the reboot um, Mm -hmm. overall. Uh, And for the first 27 of those, the Doctor was flying around with a companion named Rose Tyler, who he grew very attached to. And uh, so he's like recently been separated from Rose and uh, sort of it's not over that. And Mm -hmm. uh, meanwhile, Martha met him in just the previous episode, an episode called Smith and Jones, because the Doctor's go-to alias is John Smith, and so mm-hmm. 
so so where the doctor is just a general quote-unquote doctor of everything martha is an actual med student right so she is like got the actual medical chops like Mm -hmm. more so than the doctor does there was a whole adventure where they helped well where where they tracked down a plasmavore which is basically like a vampire except vampires have already been established as a different thing in doctor who so there's like four different Mm -hmm. episodes like through the series where it's like ah this this enemy is basically a vampire but the first one's but they're like different enough that and like the first ones are called vampires so the other ones have to be called something else uh-huh. um, there was this plasmavore like hiding out in the hospital where martha works and so martha ends up helping the doctor track her down and bring her to justice uh-huh. uh, and then you know uh he's offered martha like a trip through time and uh and he's and he says it will be just one uh, trip, but then it ends up extending into a full season's worth of adventures. Of course, I feel yeah. like the doctor often says like just this one time to uh, companions. Oh yeah, yeah. Who then become regulars for a more extended period of time? Yep. So uh, she's uh, she's you know asking him how all of this works. Uh, she also asks, uh, "Do you have to pass a test to fly this thing?" About the TARDIS, to which he responds, "Yes, and I failed." Yep. <laughs> which tracks, uh-huh. uh, given what we've seen previously. But they uh, they of course do not have once again control over precisely when and where they end up. But we arrive in London in fifteen ninety nine. Yes. Specifically in Southwark, yes, so, which uh, puts them conveniently close to the Globe Theater. Yes, they arrive. They get to appreciate the uh, the absence of modern plumbing. The Doctor points out other ways in which you know people's everyday lives are relatively similar to our own. Uh, I will also note at this point that Martha uh, asks if she is going to get carted off as a slave, and uh, the Doctor basically just says, eh, "Walk around like you own the place, like I do." Which uh, I'll talk more about the details around this later. But I do. There is something a little bit tone deaf about like a white dude being like, oh no, just you know, if you, a black woman, behave exactly like I do, it will totally work out for you in exactly the same way. I'm like, well, okay. Yeah. But- Martha, Martha is like the, and this is, this is, again, this is a overall BBC problem more than it is like specifically this show. But right. Martha is only the second companion in the, in the televised show who is not a white person. Right. Or an alien who looks like a white person. Right. Yeah. And and as I said, we'll keep talking about this. I would say the the way that race is handled in this episode strikes me as they're clearly trying, but I don't think it totally works. But it doesn't work in a way that also I think is like a very 2007 way oh, yes. of talking about race not working. Yeah. So. And there's, and like, Later episodes do this better. Like in this very season, like mm-hmm. there is uh, there's an episode called Human Nature where the Doctor and Martha have to go undercover in 1913 for a few months, and that is Martha has a much uh, a, mm-hmm. a much less good time there. 
Which is interesting because I would actually say arguably that uh, that actually tracks, uh, but I'll talk more about the details of that later. Oh, I think it tracks too, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's uh, that's actually quite interesting. So uh, since, as you said, this uh, puts them quite close to uh, to the Globe Theater, they go and see a performance, uh, which is a performance of uh, Love's, La- Love's Labor's Lost, which is weirdly hard to say several times in a row. <laughs> They, uh, you know, enjoy the performance. Uh, Martha gets to start the uh, chant of people, ch- of people uh, calling out for author to uh, for the author to come onto the stage. <laughs> yeah, she's like, Dude, author, author. Do people say that? And then, and then uh, the, the chant gets picked up by other members of the crowd, and the doctor's like, "Well, they do now." <laughs> Yep, which is funny because before she was like asking about, you know, sort of the butterfly effect issues, right? Like, is it possible that, you know, you go back in time and, you know, you kill your own grandfather or something and then you, you know, change everything badly. And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. Uh, she's she's like, what happens if I if I kill my own grandfather? Are you planning to? Right. <laughs> <laughs> also, I would say if she's killing her own grandfather and that grandfather is a guy who's in 16th century England, there's a good guy that that there's a good chance that that uh, said grandfather is like, well, probably the ancestor of a slave owning piece of shit. So, yeah. Anyway, so they attend this play and afterwards. uh, Oh, oh, sorry. And then uh, at the end of the play. We have uh, Lilith, who is off in the corner, and she's uh, she's got this little poppet uh, that she is using to influence Shakespeare, who then announces that tomorrow night they will be putting on the sequel, Love's Labors 1, which uh, the doctor remarks is something that has been mentioned in lists, but which has never actually turned up. Yeah. And, and Martha's briefly like, oh, we could, uh, may- maybe we could film it and, and bring it back to the to the future and make a killing. No, that would be bad. That would be bad. Yes, Martha, yep. that would be bad. <laughs> We're not doing that. <laughs> so they head off and try to introduce themselves to Shakespeare, who initially is uh, not really excited about the prospect of like beating a fan. Uh, and it's very much like a, a kind of deliberately anachronistic sort of take on a modern on modern celebrity culture, right? That they come in and he's like, no autographs. No, you can't have yourself sketched with me. <laughs> No, I'm not going to, uh, you know, tell you about where I got all my ideas. Yeah. But although he is quite dismissive of the doctor, he is uh, much more quickly interested in Martha, whom he describes as a delicious blackamoor lady. Yeah. Yeah. She is offended by this, understandably. There's also a slightly, like, weird conversation about, like, political correctness. Yeah. Some stuff hasn't aged great from no, 2007, but it certainly hasn't. Yeah. There's 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 a specific thing later that I think has aged especially poorly. I will yes. say it when we get to it, but but yep. Sarah already knows what I'm talking about. Yep. Yep. So the master of the revels at this point uh, comes in and says he that, you know, nobody had told him, right, that he's supposed to, that they're going to be putting on this new play tomorrow night. Uh, you know, the master of the revels has to look over the scripts and make sure there isn't anything problematic in them, you know, insists that they have to get him the script now. Shakespeare says, well, I don't have it now. I haven't finished writing it. Classic procrastination move. Which, uh, also, uh, Shakespeare's actors are also mad at him about this. 
Yeah. Yeah. That they're like, um, you, you're going to perform this tomorrow. And he's like, yeah, don't worry about it. <laughs> I'll be done with it by then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but while he's able to at least, uh, well, he at least like has enough kind of authority over the actors that they have to suck this up. Lindley, however, does not. So he rushes off in order to be able to kind of put in an order to stop the play. But uh, as it turns out, Lilith and uh, her witch buddies have an investment in the play not being stopped. And uh, so once again, they use a puppet and uh, have him essentially drown while walking on dry land in the street. Yep. He just starts like wheezing and coughing up water. And and uh, the doctor tells the, the, uh, the assembled crowds that it was a sudden imbalance of the humors that did him in. And 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 he's like, I, he's like, I don't want to panic them. I don't want them to panic and think it was witchcraft. And Martha's like, Well, what was it? Witchcraft. <laughs> yes, I'll talk about. She also uh, references them as having one foot in the dark ages, uh, which I'll I'll yeah. get back to. This again. <laughs> this again, indeed. Uh, uh, so I'll I'll get back to that particular uh, element, but you know, they obviously know at this point, right, that something quite strange is going on. Lilith also then uh, goes to Shakespeare while she does, right? She kind of pops in. There's uh, the innkeeper who uh, it's implied either just on her own has a kind of, you know, at least occasional sexual relationship with Shakespeare or maybe the kind of innkeeper as the innkeeper is all the inn is also kind of a brothel, whatever exactly is going on there. But she comes in and tries to figure and try and, you know, sees that uh, Lilith is already there and uh, Lilith has her killed as well. While she then, you know, compels Shakespeare to write this, uh, as we'll see, a very odd concluding paragraph that may not be entirely in keeping with the standards of Shakespearean language. No, not quite. (laughs) Not quite. Uh, And then uh, in a very like stereotypical witch move, like flies away on a broom and we like hear her cackling (laughs) as like her silhouette is seen flying across the moon. It's amazing. Yeah, it is an amazing shot. Also, the like the special effects in the new series are usually are generally a lot better than in the classic series. Mm -hmm. um, Because they actually have something of a budget now. Yeah. Uh, much as like they spent most of this season's budget probably on the rights to use the song "Voodoo Child" in the in the finale, um, <laughs> but the the <laughs> the scene where she's like using this voodoo doll marionette to uh, force Shakespeare to do the to finish the last of the writing, it is ridiculous looking. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> Yeah, the special effects are not are not amazing in no. this episode. They're not yeah. horrid mostly, but they're not great either. I mean, I would say that like most of the episode is fine. It's just this one yeah. scene where I'm like, yeah. oh. Shakespeare clearly realizes that uh, that something is uh, is up with these people already, right? He uh, kind of comments on the doctor as being a, a man so young with eyes so old. Uh, 
he's already kind of clocked that, uh, you know, we have this, uh, this, you know, woman who, you know, dresses unusually and who uh, comes from this, uh, this land that she makes up called Fredonia. Um, and he's like, oh, this uh, land where like women can like be a doctor or do whatever, uh, which is also something that I'll come back to as a, as a comment. We also have the uh, starting in, in around this point, I think we have a number of moments where the doctor uh, quotes Shakespeare back at Shakespeare. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so in this case, he says, all the world's a stage uh, to which Shakespeare sounds. Hmm. I mean, it's that. Yeah, there's a, there's a few of those. There is one that uh, there's one quote that I don't remember actually who it's who it's by, but it was like uh but he, uh, but the doctor says it, and 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 Shakespeare's like, "Oh, I might use that," and and the doctor's like, "You can't; it's somebody else's." Although yeah, it's so it's some. Although I looked it up, and it's like someone else will will write this line in like the nineteen seventies or something. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, so Dylan Thomas is the poet. Uh, so the line is, "It's a uh, rage, rage against the dying of the light." Uh, is the uh, is yeah, is the line. So yeah, and it's uh, it's from a poem by Dylan. It's from a poet. It's from the poem "Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night" by Dylan Thomas, um, which was written in 1947 and published in 1951. Yep. So, <laughs> and the doctor's like, you, "You can't use that one. It's it's somebody else's." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, which was, that was pretty funny, actually. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, the doctor observes that, you know, maybe there's something strange about the globe as a particular space and asks the question about why it is that the theater might have 14 sides, which is an unusual choice, um, as we'll talk about later. It's also uh, not, in fact, the choice made in the construction of the actual globe theater. But uh, we'll we'll get Mm. back to that later. Oh yeah, this is the the Globe Theater, as we'll talk about. Uh, actually, had a uh, well, probably twenty sides and maybe sixteen or eighteen, but nobody actually thinks it's had fourteen, and I'm not sure why they insisted upon fourteen. I think I think I think it's to tie in with the whole lines in a sonnet thing later. Oh yes, right. That they want to make that connection, right? Yeah. So uh, yeah, so that I think is why why they went. For, yeah, so that's that is right. That's probably why they went with fourteen. But uh, this is not actually accurate. Yeah. Oh, well. Because of this, they decide that uh, the, a good step now would be to go and talk to the architect of the Globe, a man named Peter Peter Street. But he is currently in Bethlehem Hospital or Bedlam, the hospital that is particularly associated with the treatment of the mentally ill. And uh, he is there and uh, not doing great. No. No. And... Martha, our our modern med student, is horrified at how the uh, inmates are treated, understandably, because it's bad. Yes. Because, uh, yeah. it's like, They're being whipped. The, the, it's like, would you like me to whip the insane people for your amusement, milady? Yeah. I will note before we get into the uh, the kind of more serious and plot relevant stuff that uh, so Shakespeare is flirting with Martha and the doctor interrupts them and says, uh, we can all have a good flirt later, to which he uh, uh, Shakespeare responds, is that a promise, doctor? And uh, his response is, oh, 50, 57 academics just punched the air. Yes. And uh, so, uh, that, that's that's a clever reference among many clever references but yes yes i i appreciated yeah the uh the, the little the little reference there and there yeah there are a lot of fun fun references but yeah so uh in bedlam 
The doctor manages to uh, get Peter Street to emerge from his catatonic state long enough for him to explain that uh, there are these witches who dictated the design to him and then basically broke his brain. However, the uh, the witches then observe all of this happening and show up. Uh, they kill poor Peter. Bless him. The doctor realizes uh, as all of this is going on that the witches are a group of uh, aliens. And we're, we've got aliens, uh, of course, called yeah. Carrionites. Uh, and he names them, which uh, allows then for him to temporarily defeat uh, whichever one is is there. I think uh, I, I think Doomfinger. Doom yeah. Yes. Yeah. So Banishes he manages to at least kind of yeah relocate her. Banishes her back to when she came. Yeah. And so these are witches that basically use words to manipulate psychic energy, uh, which is basically the way of the scientific way of saying they're witches who use spells to spells with words to control people's minds yep (laughs) so the the doctor's like it's not really magic it's technobabble technobabble but basically it's magic it's basically magic they use use words for power where it's like where where you uh where you humans uh turn to mathematics for your science they use words and then the power of words and uh and they've probably targeted Shakespeare because he's the best with words. Right. Right. And uh yeah, and so right, we get this right, and we get this eventually that he's tar- that they've targeted Shakespeare and it's uh because he's so good with words, and also that his uh his extreme grief after the recent loss of his son Hamnet is what kind of let uh, kind of let them in, essentially. Yeah. Again, really just sounds like magic, but yep. don't worry, it's actually science. The doctor figures out that what's going on is that the witches are hoping to use the words from Love's Labors 1, this sequel play, as a means of, like, their species has been, like, exiled and imprisoned, and this is what's going to, like, break them out, basically. Yeah. And it could bring about the end of the world. Yep. As As usual. So many things. (laughs) Yep. As usual. The doctor goes to uh, to try and find the witches. Uh, we have the terrible pun that he's like wandering in the streets and he's like, I wonder which house it is. And then sees one that like is, you know, seems very obvious. And he's like, I'll make that witch house. Ah, ah. Martha is unimpressed. <laughs> it's like, it's a very like dad joke. Oh, yeah. <laughs> ne- never forget that even as, uh, no matter how young he looks, uh, the doctor is an old man. <laughs> Yeah, uh, it it also is uh, the the house is also on All Hollow Street, which is real on the nose. Oh yeah, because why be subtle now? Now, oh no. So he goes and confronts the witches. Lilith uh, manages to uh, uh, manages to like grab a bit of his hair. Uh, she also says that men to carry knights are nothing but puppets, and I'm like, yeah, goals. Mm-hmm. Martha oh, tries the I name the Carrionite line, but Lilith is like, it only works once. Uh, yeah. Which is, you know, I think it's just because uh, if it was that easy, then we wouldn't have the rest of the episode. Right. Uh, we also, uh, they, 
they name Martha and she kind of passes out, but this has less power over her because uh, because she is out of her time. So they can't kill her using this, right? They can yeah. just, uh, they just kind of knock her out for a bit and uh, uses the poppet to stop the doctor's heart. But fortunately he's got two, so he's fine. Yeah. They only stopped one of them. Yep. And uh, she can't name him because the doctor has no real name. He, right. He's, his name is the Doctor, and that's the whole mystery of like what the Doctor's name is becomes relevant a few seasons later, but like hmm. it's never truly answered. Yeah, because I was wondering, like he must have a name presumably on like his home planet. Like there must have been something that like his parents called him when he was a kid. Oh yes, uh, like it's like the Doctor is the name he chose for himself, um, right? But. But at this point, like, his original name, not even the Master, who was uh, his childhood best friend turned evil, insane arch-nemesis, couldn't even remember it. Right. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, we already know that something is uh, odd going on with the play, because we also have seen a, uh, a brief scene from the end of the rehearsal. And yes. in the rehearsal, as they practice this uh, this concluding speech, uh, first of all, as I said, it is uh, not typical Shakespearean English. It, you know, starts talking about various, like, far-off planets. At some point, it just has a sequence of numbers. Uh -huh. uh, honestly, like, bless the guy who sees this written on the page and just, like, goes for it. Because in addition to, like, not being standard Shakespearean language it also has like nothing to do with what presumably is like the plot of love's labors one yeah and like like the two guys are like eh, it's who who knows what goes on in in all will's head <laughs> might as well right. just say what he wrote down <laughs> Yep. And then, uh, and then, you know, they, there's this essentially be, I think because of the timing, it has, it's, you know, one of these things, right, where it has to be done at a specific time for it to have full and, you know, in the full setting in order for it to have full power. Yeah. So I mean, uh, that's, that's why the witches have been very, very insistent that uh, the play be done tonight. Right. Because, like, because it's like, apparently, like, the planets will align in such a way, blah, 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 that it has to be done this night no earlier or later but they do end up having a you know having essentially a prelude of what's to come and you know a kind of odd odd vision of you know some some witchy things going on and are like <coughs> excuse me and they're like nope we're just going to uh not deal with this because if we tell anyone they'll send us to bedlam so we're just going to move along yep fair enough they, at this point, uh, once once the Doctor and Martha have managed to recover, they rush off to the Globe. Shakespeare himself had uh, tried briefly to stop the play from being performed, but gets uh, very quickly knocked out, uh, you know, with another, with another kind of puppet effort by the witches. And they start to, you know, say these, uh, say these, you know, magic words, essentially, right? We've got a portal that opens up. We start seeing all of the Carrionite slash extremely stereotypical witches uh, flying about. Yep. And the doctor tells Shakespeare that only he can find the words to close the portal. <laughs> Shakespeare's like, I haven't prepared anything. And uh, this, I guess, then is the uh, invention of improv, which uh, truly is uh, the yeah. harbinger of the end of the world. <laughs> 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 yeah, he's got a he's got an improvisonic. Yes, on the top of his dome. 
So yeah, he he improvises the sonnet, is uh, stuck for his final line, final word. This is the other bit that has not aged particularly well. Yeah, because Martha provides him with expelliarmus as the final word. At, at, at which point the doctor yells, good old JK. Which, yeah, uh, that one hasn't yeah, aged great. No. Uh-uh. I'm sure it before everybody knew that J.K. Rowling was a terrible person, it would have been charming, especially because this is only a couple of years after David Tennant was in Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. That's true. Yeah. I forgot. So I'm sure people would have like found it very charming. I'm sure I would have found it very charming in 2007 because most people at least did not. I did not know at least that J.K. Rowling was a horrible person, but yeah. Yeah. Has not aged great. Also, I wonder if they had to, like, give her money for this. I hope not. Yeah. Mm. Oh, well. Yeah. Oh, well. So, <laughs> anyway, with this, the Carrionites are sucked back into the uh, the portal. Shakespeare uh, continues to uh, to chat with uh, to ch- to chat with Martha and attempt to seduce her. He uh, comes up with uh, with a sonnet for my dark lady. Uh, so this, uh, of course, a real Shakespearean sonnet is presented as being written for Martha specifically, uh, but she she turns him down. Uh-huh. As they're leaving, uh, we also the uh, the doctor uh, to mentions uh, mentions the term Sycorax, which I think in context is like supposed to be some sort some other sort of alien. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Back actually, this is this is the payoff for uh, for a joke that was set up over a season previously, because the Sycorax are like these aliens that the do- that actually the tenth Doctor in his very first story as the tenth Doctor fought against these aliens called the Sycorax in an episode called the Christmas Invasion. No points for tell for guessing when that takes place. Uh, <laughs> And and so like at the when that came out, it's like oh, this is a weird random word that means nothing from a Shakespeare from from the Tempest by Shakespeare, and uh, and so now uh, the Doctor like just because because no one because like this is this is a, a a word that like Shakespeare has in this play, and to this day no one knows right. what it means. So the Doctor like uh, just is like is like you know, digging around through uh, the old, uh, Globe's prop stores. And he's like, I'm not sure about this skull. It looks kind of like a Sycorax. And and, the, and Shakespeare's like, I may use that. <laughs> right, right. And so and so what she ends up being, of course, is that she is uh, this like, she's a witch, actually. She's uh, the witch who is the mother of Caliban, who is like referenced, but never actually seen in The Tempest. Okay. And I think this is when uh, when Shakespeare's like, I'll have that off you in yeah. the talk. It's like, I should get 10%. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah. And it's at this point that Shakespeare tells Martha about, uh, you know, the tragic death of his son, Hamnet. Mm-hmm. And, and Martha's like, Hamnet. Hamnet. <laughs> <laughs> and Shakespeare's like, is something wrong? <laughs> She's like, is- nope. No, we figure it uh, out. Because <laughs> this is a, this is of course a few years. This is several years before uh, Shakespeare actually writes Hamlet. Yes, yes, uh, and I will say it seems it seems very possible that the term that the words uh, or the names Hamnet and Hamlet were considered essentially like interchangeable. Possibly, yeah. Or that like one is a nickname for the other. Like there's somebody else who's definitely named Hamnet 
that like is sometimes referred to as Hamlet. So quite possibly. Yeah. So that probably, you know, is there probably are connected, but we'll we'll get to that. And as they are taking their leave, uh, they're very excited because they've been talking throughout, right, about how, you know, Queen Elizabeth never uh, never actually comes to their place. And then here she is. She's arrived. She uh, wants to see Love's Labors 1, in which she will be disappointed. <laughs> yes, because uh, all copies of the script have been uh, sucked through uh, the big vortex that sucked the Carrionites back up. Yes, and the doctor is thrilled to see her, but she then replies, the doctor, my sworn enemy. Off with his head. And the doctor's like, uh, what? What? <laughs> yeah, and they have to, and as they're, they're running off, Martha's like, what did you do? And he's like, I don't know, I haven't done it yet. This is also a joke that will be explained in a few seasons' time. Okay, uh, I, in, I look in, forward to covering yeah, that eventually. In the 50th anniversary special, we get to see just exactly what the doctor did that that upset her so much. Fantastic. Uh, well, um, as I, I assume we will cover that at some point. Yeah. And this is specifically uh, the 10th doctor because earlier incarnations have met Queen Elizabeth. As we established back in the, when we did the Marian conspiracy, the sixth doctor mentions that he's met Queen Elizabeth before. Right. Um, which he actually did back as the first doctor in uh, in a serial called The Chase, which mm-hmm. most most classic serials like take place in roughly one spot in space uh-huh. and time. But as the as the title of The Chase may imply, uh, that serial was like the Daleks have figured out time travel and are chasing the crew of the TARDIS through various points in space and time, and so they briefly meet queen elizabeth then mm-hmm. um this is also the uh the serial where ian and barbara depart and stephen comes aboard oh so it's, so it's, immediate, it's immediately prior to the time meddler as right happens. right oh okay but i guess it, it seems like with a with few exceptions it seems like most people if they've met the doctor don't necessarily recognize him when he appears in a new like body essentially right yes so. which is which is presumably why queen elizabeth has it out for the 10th doctor specifically right right cuz he's it's like he's got the same face right now yeah so yeah, that is uh, the the end of our episode. So uh, so this one, uh, I guess, as we kind of move into the new series, it seems like now it looks like mostly we have basically just kind of a single episode. I think this one's like a little under, and it's it's probably was like an hour before commercials, or yeah. like an hour with commercials, right? It's usually single episodes. There are two. There are some two parters here and there. Um, yeah, I think I think we actually only have one two-parter on our on our big google doc of of medieval set who yeah the the only two-parter we've got we've got uh to look forward to in the new series for this podcast is two episodes called the girl who died and the woman who lived Mm, interesting Um, yeah in, in the girl who died the doctor and clara go to a viking village and one of the Vikings, through shenanigans, accidentally becomes immortal. And then in the woman who lived, uh, they catch up with her, like in the se- in the mid seventeenth century, 
Yeah. Where she's been just taking the slow path because she's immortal. Mm-hmm. So, Interesting. Yeah. 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 Look forward to watching that. With that, I think we can move into the Vera at Falso, where we talk about what the series got right and wrong, which, as usual, I would say, ends up being a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) One might expect that Shakespeare, that we would uh, talk about Shakespeare for the Historia at Veritas, but we're not. We're going to talk about Peter Street and architecture. So. Ah. Instead, so I'm going to say a few things about Shakespeare now. I'm not going to say that much about Shakespeare. Everybody knows who Shakespeare is. Yeah. But I just wanted to note, uh, so first of all, that we have right, Martha uh, Martha and the doctor come in, and Martha comments on the fact that he looks pretty different from his portrait, uh, which I will note makes sense, right? The portrait was done later in life. Uh, at this point, Shakespeare would have been about 35, and I didn't look up how old the actor is, but it, for me, tracks that he's about 35. Yeah, and he's got... Uh considerably more hair than his yes. classic famous portrait. Right. And you've got a couple of jokes about like, if you keep messing with your hair, you're going to go bald. Yeah. Cause Shakespeare is the kind of artist who like is constantly running his hand through his hair. Yeah. Very dramatically. Very dramatically. <laughs> we have of course the central plays of love's labor is lost and love's labor is won. So Love's Labor is Lost was probably first performed in the mid-1590s. And I will note that despite the, oh, Queen Elizabeth never comes and sees our plays, this play actually was performed probably during the 1597-1598 Christmas season at court before Queen Elizabeth. So Queen Elizabeth probably did, in fact, see Love's Labor is Lost. Love's Labors 1 is uh, much more complicated, so it is a title that is referenced in lists of plays that were written by Shakespeare uh, and lists that were composed in 1598 and 1603. And there are a variety of different theories about what it might be. So some, of course, have suggested that it's a sequel. The problem with this is that how many, like, how many sequels have you read about in uh, the, you know, Shakespearean, uh, you know, canon? Uh, apart from, apart from the Henriad, I can't call any to mind. Exactly, and in general, uh, in Elizabethan drama, in general, histories sometimes have sequels. Tragedies sometimes have sequels, but much more rarely. And comedies basically never have sequels. So if he did, in fact, intend to write a sequel to his comedy, that would have been a very unusual decision, which doesn't make it impossible, but it isn't the kind of thing that people did. Yes. No. So other theories that people have essentially are that it's basically an alternative title for some other play, which was very possibly a play that does in fact still exist. And there's a whole list of possibilities that people have come up with. Uh, I think a number of people have suggested much ado about nothing, for example, might've been originally called Love's Labors One. Sure. I actually have a fun fact about this episode. Oh. Um, When they were first like spitballing the idea of a Shakespeare episode, Mm -hmm. uh, they were debating whether to have the villains be they wanted to have like the villains be some kind of creature from an iconic Shakespeare play. It was either going to be witches or mm-hmm. fairies, which I realized. Oh, was oh that would have been so fun. It would have been, but this was also fun. So they, they, they eventually yeah. decided that, uh, that they wanted to go with 
witches as the villains. So Oh, this this is good and I really like this episode, but like the sort of like not exactly evil, but just like intensely amoral fairies of Midsummer oh, yeah. Night's Dream, I feel like would be so fun. That would be fun. Maybe they'll come you, back one day. Maybe. I mean the doctors visited Shakespeare like four times already. Yeah. So Yeah, like, so like, he doesn't he, he need to go. Like com- comparatively speaking, he seems a tad overdone, but yeah. Yeah. So maybe we don't need another. Uh, my other fun fact is that uh, when I was doing research about the play Love's Labors 1, that uh, the modern Globe Theater, which I'll talk about more later in 2021, did uh, an April Fool's announcement that they had found a copy of Love's Labors 1 in the attic. <laughs> <laughs> and that they were going to put it on in 2022. <laughs> Uh, that's, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'll, I'll put that link in the show notes. The yeah, the uh, the article is because at first I was like I at first I just started reading the thing and I didn't look at the I was like what this is weird like I didn't I've never like I feel like this is like enough of a thing that like I would have heard about this and then I'm like this doesn't sound right like this sounds real like this sounds doesn't sound like a thing that really happens then I looked at the date I'm like ah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this seems wrong. And then I'm like, mm, that's what's going on. Yeah, it, was, it was just uh, tucked away behind some old bicycles. Uh. Yep. Yep. And then there was also like, there was a great, like, there are a couple of uh, like pullout quotes. And then there was, uh, and it was like one academic who's like, now I'll finally get an editing credit on my CV. Ah! <laughs> Pretty funny. Uh, other things that I'll just quickly mention that it touches on from the life of Shakespeare is uh, that Shakespeare did, in fact, have a son named Hamnet who died at the age of 11 in 1596. And indeed, that there are suggestions that a number of his plays uh, might be or his sonnets might be referencing the uh, the grief over Hamnet's death and that that might be part of what's going on in uh, in the play Hamlet, although, of course, that also has like additional um, sources uh, that it's, as I've talked about more extensively in my Northman episode, it is originally uh, based on a uh, the, the story, uh, the story of, Am- of a figure named Amleth. So neat. We kind of combined Amleth and Hamnet into Hamlet, arguably. Sure. <laughs> that, that, that makes sense. Yeah. As much as anything else does. Yeah. There also is, uh, by the way, a lot of discussion about Shakespeare as possibly being uh, queer or bisexual, uh, hence the, uh, the apparent the excitement of a small cohort of academics that the doctor references. Well, so uh, the specific number chosen is less uh, referencing a number of academics and more the fact that Sonnet 57 is considered to be especially homoerotic. Mm-hmm. So, yes. So hence the line 57 academics just punched the air. Yes. That, I didn't, that was, that's interesting. I actually didn't think to look up. Uh, I didn't think to look up the specific number. I was just like, Oh yeah, that's just a random, like relatively small number. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's fun. That's a good joke. Yeah. Some some fun elements that we have in terms of Shakespeare. We also, I will, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, things that it did, maybe some some well and some a little more complicated in terms of talking about healthcare. <laughs> so uh, I will uh, 
first mention that uh, Shakespeare expresses uh, like real shock at the possibility that there's this other land where women can be doctors. And uh, this, I would say, uh, I would argue, does not totally map onto something that a man in Elizabethan London would have thought. So women were not formally known as doctors, but it's pretty obvious that women worked in healthcare and that ordinary people in London would have been very much aware of that. And so especially given that I think she says something like, I'm a doctor or close enough, I think especially given that she says that, uh, that would have been very easily accepted, right, as something within the realm of possibility within Elizabethan England. So to say a bit more of that about this, we have payment records, basically recording people get paid for people getting paid for providing medical care. And these routinely describe women who are practicing as midwives, who are healing injuries, and who are providing long-term care for convalescing patients. We do have critiques coming from male surgeons, kind of uh, basically describing women healthcare professionals as presumptuous and uh, the, with the kind of implication that they don't actually know what they're doing. But we also have, on the other hand, the Barber Surgeon Company, which is essentially a guild, seems to have expected that the wives of barber surgeons would practice alongside their husbands and officially allowed them to take over their husbands' shops during widowhood, uh, much like a number of other guilds. And in general, I will say that there's uh, at this point, women would not have been allowed to formally receive university medical training, but that they certainly could have basically learned on the job in formal or informal apprenticeships, uh, you know, often perhaps from, you know, a parent, you know, from a parent or from their husbands. Um, And honestly, like, given the actual medicine that's being taught in universities at this point, arguably, like, a hands-on approach to medical care is probably actually arguably getting you, like, better medical knowledge from a modern perspective than what's actually being you know, than like what, than like the theory of the four humors that's being taught in schools. Yeah. So there's no reason to expect, so there's no, certainly no reason to assume that the medical practitioners in the Middle Ages and early modern period who received this kind of informal training, there's no reason to think they would have been less competent than university educated doctors. And if you're interested in learning more about this, there's a a really interesting article um, that uh, I took some of the information uh, on specifically Elizabethan England from, because I'm pretty familiar with the medieval stuff on this, but less familiar with specifically that early modern Elizabethan context. So I was, I'm referencing here some things from Deborah Harkness's article, A View from the Streets, Women and Medical Work in Elizabethan London. Uh, Deborah Harkness also being the author of the series, uh, A Discovery of Witches, which uh, ends up then... um, having this character who ends up being like a modern person who at some point is like time traveling and hanging out in Elizabethan England. So uh, she is, she is both an academic and uh, has like written this like fictional series that has now been turned into a TV show. Fun. Yeah. So, which is the only way academics ever actually make real money. I mean, and writing yeah. textbooks, I guess. Yeah. Most of us are broke. Oh yes. <laughs> So as I said, I think it could have done a little bit better on the doctors, but I think it actually ends up doing relatively well, unfortunately, um, in terms of the description of Bethlehem Hospital or Bedlam. 
So Bedlam was uh, where Bethlehem Pot was founded in 1247, not as a hospital in the sense that we would understand it now, but essentially as an institution, the goal of which was to collect alms to support the bishopric of Bethlehem in, uh, in the Crusader states. And the goal is that, right, it would also house the poor along with uh, people who are visiting and like in- coming into town from the bishopric, right? So it's like, all right, you like collect alms and you house the poor here. And if the bishop comes and visits, this is where he gets to stay. Yeah. Gradually, the connections to the military order of Bethlehem, which is kind of foundational for this, uh, increasingly these connections weaken, at which point it becomes basically a secular institution and then is formally granted to the city of London by Henry VIII in 1547. And so there's some conversation about, you know, because of this, uh, this is an institution that starts out as a religious institution and arguably could be considered kind of pseudo monastic, but that survives the dissolution of the monasteries because it now has been sort of transitioned into being a secular institution. And by this point, we can, and it also it kind of transitions more and more as the connections to the Order of Bethlehem diminish, it's more and more becomes a place where uh, that would be focused on caring for the poor and the sick. And starting definitively, at least by uh, the early 15th century, it definitely houses at least some patients uh, who are people who are considered to be mentally ill. And by the end of the 15th century, it seems to have become known as uh, an institution that in fact specializes in this area. We do have references to uh, two people being whipped. I would say that the depiction that we have here is, uh, however, uh, more gruesome and horrific than the actual kind of everyday reality would have been. And I will also note that uh, while references to Bedlam do not, as far as I can tell, refer directly, uh, appear directly in Shakespeare's plays, Bedlam does get referenced frequently in uh, a number of slightly later uh, kind of Jacobean drama. So things that actually you know, are written during uh, later during Shakespeare's lifetime, but a bit later than this. But there's a number of plays that actually even like reference, right, somebody who is described as mad being taken to, uh, to Bethlehem Hospital. Um, which like in one play then just gets like conveniently moved to Italy. Um, yeah. Like like the play takes place in Italy and they say they're like taking him to Bethlehem hospital. And the implication is like, not that he's like going to England, but that it's clearly is like referencing, right. This place, uh, this place in England. Yeah. The details of geography, like kind of don't really matter to people writing plays in the late 16th and early 17th century. So that's fine. Certainly not. I, I question Shakespeare's access to maps, um, especially you know, there's maps. A- <laughs> There's access to maps and, you know, good maps existed, but would Shakespeare have had himself have had access to them? So there's that question. And then there's a question of like, did anybody care? No. And my sense is kind of no. I mean, my sense is in general, like all of these, like all of these plays also, right? I mean, in terms of like chronology, all of these plays, regardless of whether they're at when, when they're actually supposed to take place, all kind of seem like they take place in the late 16th and early 17th century. In terms of like social norms and ideas, they all sort of seem like they take place basically in like the now of Shakespeare. And even and like regardless of where they take place geographically, like most of them sort of feel like they're taking place in England. I mean, which is fine. I mean, people also like in this period and in the Middle Ages, like when they're, you know, making like when they're creating like paintings of people from like the biblical like Bible times and from like greco-roman antiquity like they're all just dressed like people who are like in like the middle ages or the early modern period right i mean people just don't care about this sort of thing 
Yeah, it's 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 very Jesus Christ superstar of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. We have upon uh, upon the death of our master of the rebels, right? Shakespeare, uh, Shakespeare um, the doctor, for it just you know explains, right? He died from a sudden imbalance of the humors, uh, which would have been um, standard medical theory in both the medieval and the early modern period that uh, an imbalance of the humors could be dangerous for you. Mm-hmm. And he then states that these people still have one foot in the dark ages. If we tell them the truth, they'll panic and think it was witchcraft, uh, to which then Martha asks, what was her? And he says, witchcraft. Mm-hmm. So once again, right, we have the uh, the use of this dark ages terminology, uh, which like no self-respecting historian has, you know, used in at this point already, probably in like, and like in several decades. Yeah. This is not the first um, time the doctor has done this. Probably won't right. be the last uh... Oh, right. Absolutely. I suppose the one thing one can say is that it certainly is the case that there is uh, quite a bit of continuity between the medieval and the early modern period, which doesn't mean either should be referred to as the Dark Ages. But it is certainly the case that certain things like medicine that we see in the Middle Ages, right, that is one of the things that you would see, like, there are not a lot of, like, particularly remarkable medical innovations associated with the early modern era. No. So just kind of speaking to as well, right, the perception of the early, of, you know, early modernity slash the Renaissance as like, everything has suddenly gotten better. Yay! Not Uh necessarily the case. And sometimes things got worse. Uh, One specific way in which things got worse is that, uh, as I have mentioned genuinely 5 million times on this podcast, witch persecution is, of course, something that is associated much more with the early modern period than with the Middle Ages, that, of course, means, right, that we're in approximately the uh, correct period to place uh, anxiety about witchcraft. I will say I do have issues with media that goes with the choice of, yes, actually, real evil witches with some kind of supernatural abilities are like an actual problem in society. I have a something of an issue with that choice in modern media because it kind of always feels like it's saying that witch persecutions were like justified. Yeah. That's... As opposed to like murdering a lot of women and some men for no reason. Yeah, I can I can see the where the problem there is. And this is far from the only, you know, thing that does that. There's a whole lot of, like, you know, I'm like, like, I have this issue and, like, you know, I have an immense amount of nostalgic love for the movie Hocus Pocus. I also think the movie Hocus Pocus is, like, problematic in that sense. Yeah. There's a later episode, late enough that I actually haven't seen it, called The Witchfinders, which Mm. I think addresses that that whole deal more directly. I know that uh, King Jimmy 6-1 makes mm-hmm. an appearance in that one. So. Ah, yeah, that would make sense, yes. And and it is, of course, and I've talked about this in another episode as well, it is, of course, James the first slash sixth's anxiety about witches is probably part of the background for Shakespeare writing Macbeth, a play, you know, about anx- in part about anxiety about witches. Yeah. I think the whole point of having the witches be the villains here is, like, this is this is what inspired Shakespeare to right, do yeah. witches. The the alternative would have been 
fairies for Midsummer Night's Dream, but the but the writers thought, ah, eh, witches are scarier. Witches probably are scarier, but like the fairies would have been, and like, and they are fun. I will like, I have the issue theoretically, but they are really, really fun. Um, I also like, I think it is fun that, uh, that one of them is named Lilith. I've also talked about Lilith before, right? But Lilith yeah. is right. This, uh, this figure who, um, according to initially, uh, Jewish, um, you know, biblical interpretations. And then this kind of gets picked up by, by Christians somewhat later, right? That Lilith is, uh, the, the first wife made for Adam who then goes off and becomes a baby killing demon. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also often like represented as a seductress. Like I think it is like I also think it's like a cool choice that she's named Lilith, uh, even if it like when you sort of think about it all, it's arguably all kind of a little bit problematic. But uh yeah. it is all a fun choice, but I think it's worth mentioning. I mean she can't run around with a name like Doomfinger. <laughs> you it's can't like it's, all it's, be she, named Doomfinger. You, you, you can't run around fifteen 15- 99 London, like introducing yourself as hi, I'm blood tied. <laughs> like, you know, and like she's trying to, like, you know, get all of these, like, you know, men to do things uh, based in part on seduction. And like, nobody's going to date a woman named Doomfinger. No one, yeah. <laughs> just, as, just as no one's going to date a man named Iron Prawn. Right. <laughs> if I ever have children, I'm naming them Doomfinger and Blood Tide. Excellent. Regardless I, of gender. I, 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 <laughs> Uh, you, no, no Iron Grom for the boys? Well, Doomfinger and Bloodtide better. And I think, honestly, Iron Grom sounds very male, but I think Doomfinger and Bloodtide are actually great names that I think are actually really can function as gender neutral. And I think that's fantastic. That's true. Yeah. So I think I'm going to really lean into that. Yeah. <laughs> for my almost certainly non-existent future children. Uh-huh. <laughs> the last thing I wanted to talk about in this segment before moving on to the Historia at Veritas is uh, to talk a little bit about the racial dynamics here. So the doctor is correct that Martha would not be dragged off and enslaved, but this is not just by virtue of her walking around as if she owns the place, which, as I said before, feels like a bit of a tone-deaf remark for a white man to make to a Black woman. Uh-huh. Um but because, in fact, the Black people that we have recorded as living in England during this period, including living in London, are not generally enslaved people that I would say England typically um, in uh, in the like 16th and 17th century people, there are not really slaves in England per se, as opposed to in English colonies. Yeah, yeah. I think the intent of, of the writing is less like is is more to to just educate that yes there were black people in England in the 16th yeah. century which yeah. a lot of people to this day do not realize right yeah so i do think that aspect is really important and that we have a number of records referring to black people living in elizabethan london the people who are referenced uh mostly seem to be waged domestic servants uh so there is certainly i would say you know very possibly there would be more of a kind of generalized assumption uh when people saw her in the doctor people would probably have assumed very possibly that she was potentially the doctor's servant but also not necessarily. We also have a number of references uh, that seem to indicate that there are interracial marriages. So she also could just as easily be his wife. And there are also references to Black people in Elizabethan London who are practitioners of various kinds of artisanal trades, entertainers, uh, and as prostitutes. Yeah. And, and with the whole marriage deal, I don't think Martha would have minded. 
but I also because the doctor and Martha's dynamic is very much like Martha has a crush on the doctor and the doctor does not realize at all because he's still like kind of pining for Rose um, who he's been like separated from across space and time and multiversal barriers I don't remember if it's in this episode or the very next episode, but Martha's like, wow, ever heard of a rebound? (laughs) I don't think it's this episode, but there is definitely a little bit like, there's definitely a little bit of a vibe. And so, yeah, I'm not, not surprised to hear that. Yeah. Historia et veritas. Well, at this point... We can move into the Historia et Veritas. And uh, as I said, I'm not, you know, one can talk about Shakespeare any old time. I think I might have sort of talked about him in more depth than uh, when I I covered Shakespeare in love. I'm sure you did. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to take uh, advantage of this rare opportunity (laughs) to talk about Peter Street and the Globe Theater. Because we do actually have, as arguably kind of central to the plot, even if he's not in the uh, show, in the episode for very long, Peter Street, the architect responsible for the Globe Theater, is, uh, you know, arguably a pretty important, uh, a pretty important part of our story here. The real Peter Street had a much more dramatic life. Uh, Sorry, a much less dramatic life. (laughs) (laughs) He He had a less dramatic but longer life. Yeah. Uh, as it turns out, than is portrayed here. He is the son of a joiner who then gets apprenticed to a carpenter. And uh, this is fairly common, I would say, that in these trades that are related, both involved in woodworking, but that uh, have kind of slightly different areas of specialization, it's fairly common that uh, you might have your son apprenticed with somebody who's, you know, in one of these kind of related but slightly distinct trades. They're just, however, a little bit of a kind of split uh, and some conflict between the carpenters and the joiners, which happened in London uh, in 1571, which is shortly into Street's apprenticeship. So maybe that's the real drama. Um, <laughs> is the, uh, the split between the woodworking trades in the 1570s. <laughs> And he, you know, it seems to have been somebody who, uh, you know, is recognized as having a lot of prote- a lot of potential. Uh, basically, there's a kind of more prestigious carpenter who, uh, you know, kind of sees his work and ends up taking over his apprenticeship, kind of when he's uh, when he's only been, you know, working as an apprentice for a few years. And one of the things, right, uh, it's also, you know, today we see carpentry and architecture as being quite distinct professions. And that's not, in fact, necessarily the case, right, when we're looking at this period. Um, that, And this is, in fact, you know, a lot of what he seems to have eventually ended up doing is architecture, including in particular that he seems to have had a uh, bit of a specialization in theater design, as I'll uh, touch on more in a moment. He became active in the Carpenters Guild in the 1580s and 1590s, and uh, actually even got named as second warden in 1598, So, which is a kind of relatively prestigious position in the guild. Uh, and his his master that he apprenticed with uh, had actually, you know, had actually led the guild. But then in 1599, he got censured for not spending enough time on guild business, probably because he's actually like really busy with his like increasingly complicated building projects. So he uh, he ends up uh, not rising higher in the guild, but does continue to be very much involved in actually, you know, the, the everyday, you know, realities of practicing his trade. 
And in addition to the Globe, build, Globe builds uh, or is involved in building several other theaters. So this includes uh, the first of these is the theater at Shoreditch. There's this project at Blackfriars, another theater called The Fortune, which I'll touch on more later. And uh, he dies while uh, after he's been hired, but before construction is complete on a theater called The Hope. Also, because of this uh, specialization, he actually seems to have risen above the rivalries within the theater industry. There is this kind of big rivalry between uh, a family called the Burbages and uh, a man named Philip Henslow. And so uh, after he builds the globe for the Burbages, Henslow, who owns this other theater called The Rose, commissions Street to now build his new theater, The Fortune. And in the contract that we have for this, it actually keeps specifying, like, do what you did like at the globe for a bunch of things so yeah so clearly so yeah so clearly henslow thought that like street had done a really good job on the globe and wanted a like similar version um of the theater although his was a kind of standard rectangle rectangle square or something as opposed to the multi-sided uh structure of the globe which we'll get back to in a moment and you know that street clearly is you know he's he's just a guy doing his job and is not involved in uh in all of these rivalries within the theater industry um he does however end up being involved in some other uh kind of at least uh, is kind of involved to the side in uh, some other legal conflicts so the globe is replacing actually this earlier project that street did the theater in shoreditch and basically the lease is up on that theater and uh the landlord has you know said he doesn't want to renew the lease and so they like this they and so the burbages decide okay we want to build like a bigger nicer theater somewhere else and so they uh, literally then dismantle the theater in Shoreditch and carry it all and carry the pieces off like beam by beam. <laughs> That's amazing. And the landlord, Giles Allen, uh, seems to have like put in a claim that like, this is act- like you built this right on my property. And so I have some ownership over all of this wood, right? Which even you know, these are expensive building materials. Uh-huh. Uh, and the case never seems to have been actually definitively resolved. Uh, Allen and the Burbages basically keep making counterclaims for years. Amazing. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it probably does help save money that you're able to uh, reuse some of these building materials, especially because uh, the globe is actually ends up being quite a bit larger than the earlier buildings. So they would have needed like a lot. They would have needed a lot of timber uh, and more timber than they would have been able to uh, salvage from uh, from the theater in shortage. But, you know, nice that they at least had like a bit already that they could reuse for free. Minus the legal fees. The globe was a complex, multi-sided design, but as we touched on already, archaeological evidence indicates that it probably had 20 sides, not 14. And there are some scholars that argue for it having 16 sides or 18 sides, but nobody seems to think it has 14. Uh, I think, as you suggested, right, there probably is because they wanted to have the kind of connection with how many lines there are in the sonnet, right, and kind of make these kind of make these connections. And so, 14 is sort of more convenient than 20. Mm-hmm. Oh well. The Globe Theater was uh, was destroyed in a fire during a performance, uh, which seems to have been a mishap involving a theatrical cannon during a performance of Henry VIII. Uh, you're surprised. not supposed to actually put a, put a ball in the cannon? Yes, yeah, somebody clearly <laughs> fucked up. 
Uh, as it turns out, nobody actually died, but the theater was completely destroyed and was rebuilt the following year. By this point, Street was not involved as uh, this happened in, uh, I didn't write down the date, but I believe in 1613 um, is the date when uh, when the globe uh, burned down. And uh, Peter Street uh, had passed away by this point. However, he had passed away in 1609. The, uh, the show actually kills him off a full decade. Ah before Peter Street is actually supposed to have died. Uh, there is also, by the way, no particular reason to think that he, like, that he, you know, during this entire period in the late 1590s and early 1600s, he, like, had a few kind of issues with the Guild, but, like, seems to have been, like, quite active and doing quite well for himself overall in his profession and not, like, locked away in Bedlam. Yeah. So, uh, Street's life was uh, less dramatic, but also uh, perhaps more pleasant than it is portrayed as being in this show. So yes, the uh, the globe is uh, is rebuilt uh, along, it seems like based on the information that we have, it seems like they kind of made an effort to have it be relatively similar to the original. And that version, however, was torn down in the 1640s, uh, it basically following the closure of the theaters that started in the context of the English Civil War. Today, what you can go to is a modern reconstruction, which opened in 1997, but there were efforts made to reproduce uh, the original buildings as much as possible. Nice. Yeah. And it's and it's a cool building. Someday. Someday I, yeah. will, I will get out of this country and get, go there. <laughs> Yeah, it's a cool experience. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool experience to, uh, to go and see a, a performance at the Globe. Nice. Yeah. That is uh, our our tour into the life of Peter Street, who, as I said, I feel like I feel like it's like a little bit done dirty in this episode that they like make him like have to go crazy and kill him off. But yeah, ah, uh, <laughs> uh, well, but he certainly is an accomplished architect. Yeah, for better or worse. Fabulanostra. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So with that, we can move into the Fabula Nostra. Uh, so based on our conversations, it seems like you actually probably uh, maybe at least came up with something in more more in advance yeah. than I did. Uh, well, maybe. Uh, okay, I maybe not. Okay. Um, I will I say mean, I struggled with this too, but uh, I, no, this was hard. Like the nearest thing I can th- I can think of for something called the Shakespeare Code is is like maybe spies uh uh who are traveling around uh, disguised as a theater troupe and like shakespeare is code for them like mm. their their codes are 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 shakespeare references and yeah but but it's like spies in like i don't know world war 2 times maybe yeah so yeah. And apparently, actually, the uh, the title was uh, was actually supposed to be either in reference to or inspired by the popularity of uh, the Da Vinci Code. Oh, it absolutely was. Yeah. So, uh... but like, I don't know. Shakespeare doesn't lend himself well as well to codes as Da Vinci mm-hmm. does. So, yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. It's 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 tricky. I did my usual thing where I took the just kind of bare inspiration of the concept of uh, the doctor hanging out with a writer and then there's some kind of weird supernatural stuff, you know, supernatural stuff, aliens, whatever, uh, and ran with that. And also, as usual, my immediate reaction is uh, fuck off England. 
Because <laughs> I know why, as an English show, I know why that Doctor Who is disproportionately set in England. But it is like my general like, but England is really so much less important and less interesting than everybody thinks it is. So we should spend more time in other places. <laughs> so my idea instead is uh, to have the doctor go and hang out with uh, another writer. In, uh, in this case, we're going to be in the early 15th century, and he is going to hang out in France with the writer Christine de Pizan, who is uh, somebody who's actually sometimes uh, credited, which is not something I would quite say this exactly, but I understand where it's coming from. She's sometimes discredited as being like the first feminist. And she certainly is somebody, right, who is uh, actually really invested in critiquing misogynist discourses of her time, not in exactly the way, right, that a feminist today certainly would do so, but this is something that she is invested in. In the early 15th century, she's involved essentially in this debate uh, over a popular but overtly misogynist work of literature called the Roman de la Rose. So I would like to have the doctor come back during that, and that it turns out that he actually, uh, that uh, actually this is deeply important because it turns out that the Roman de la Rose is a uh, somehow part of an alien plot to do something. And so her critique of the Ramon de la Rose is like very important. That's about yeah. as far as I got. <laughs> you know, I, the book of the city of ladies has been on my, um, on my to read list for a while. It's cool. Uh, yeah. Actually, now that you've said that I've, I've got a, I've got what I think is a better idea. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it falls into the to the well-tread genre of the Doctor meets a historical writer. Like, from, from the new series alone, the Doctor, in addition to Shakespeare, has also met Charles Dickens, Agatha Christie, Jane Austen. Like, this is, this is, a, this is mm -hmm. not a new, like, plot. It's not a new plot. But Dante. He goes to meet yes. Dante. And we get... And like I don't know, maybe the uh, the alien villains are like suitably demonic and and like and so instead of a lot of clever references to the various works of Shakespeare, we get a lot of clever references to the Divine Comedy. That would be fun. And, and the various uh, circles of hell and all that, all that yeah. good good stuff. Yeah, that would be really fun. I also will say, you know, inspired by what you said earlier, even while not necessarily wanting, like, more Shakespeare, I do think that, like, having the fairies as villains would be, like, finding a way to do that, I think would be so yes. fun. That would be great. Especially, like, because I think they'd be... I don't know, it'd be interesting to see how they did them, because, like, the witches in Macbeth are also actually not exactly evil. No. Right? Like, they... Like, they don't really actually do anything, right? I and mean, they really just kind of, like, chat. Yeah. I mean, I think of, I think of the witches, and my, and my own, like, view is, is uh, invariably colored by uh, Weird Sisters. Very by fair. Terry Pratchett. So, like... Which I've covered. Yeah. So I can't think of, I can't think of, like, a, a coven of witches without thinking of Granny Weatherwax. Right. Right. So, 
Yeah, so uh, so it would be interesting to see what they what they did with the fairies and if they did end up uh, kind of going the route of making them more overtly evil. But I think it would be fun if they actually did basically what like what is done with them in Midsummer Night's Dream. That like they're not evil; they just are kind of fundamentally amoral and only really care about like their own in like internal squabbles and yeah. like all of these dumb people who just keep getting caught in the middle. Yeah. And like, I don't know, maybe if you stayed out of the fucking woods, you wouldn't have a problem. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this brought to you by the fact that I just listened uh, at the time of recording to the uh, the Bechdel cast episode on the Blair Witch Project, which like I saw when it came yeah. out, but I don't think have seen since then. And listening to it now, I'm just like, my reaction to all of this is just never, ever go into the woods. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not a big camping person. I'm a like indoors and shower person. And like the woods are fine if it's like a hike that lasts for like under two hours on a very well-defined path is sort of my idea of the the acceptableness of the woods. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. Estimatio. We uh, can now finish up with our estimatio or rating section. I'm I'm actually gonna go with uh with I think a four out of five. I really enjoyed watching this episode. I found it really fun. For me, the points off are really coming from basically like the witch stuff that I have problems with ideologically and like just stuff that hasn't aged well, right? The kind of very, very 2007 discussion of race, like uh-huh. wasn't great. And also like somebody at the time probably could have told them to do a slightly better job on that. And the stuff that, you know, I I don't quite feel like I want to, I don't know, it doesn't quite seem point, seem fair to take points off for, like, the, uh, the you know, J.K. Rowling reference stuff, because, like, really, I don't think anybody knew in 2007 or, like, could have known in 2007, uh, but it True. does, like, put a bit of a damper on oh, the yeah. experience of watching the episode. It's, it's, like, it's like watching insert any 90s sitcom here and it's like oh we've got a we've got a cameo from donald trump look how right exactly exactly yeah and like you know and in in you know in the 90s right donald trump was just well it probably actually still just seemed like a dick but he was like a regular dick and not like a dick who was actually ruining everybody's lives yeah (laughs) so and you know in like in 2007 Rowling was like beloved and you know might have been still if she just shut the fuck up and counted her money yep and not tried to ruin people's lives instead yeah what about you where are you on the uh, on the rating for the episode for the first time in media evil history i'm grading something lower than you are oh wow i'm putting this at a 3.5 uh okay because uh like i mean there's the tone deafness with race and yeah i don't i don't think we we can like I, I don't think we can like really blame them for for all the rolling stuff, but it still yeah. leaves a nasty taste in my mouth. And, yeah. and you know, this is a purely subjective rating, so yep. so it so it loses points for that. That said, I mean, it's fun. I actually watched the I actually went ahead and watched the entire season that this is a part of, and it actually fits interestingly into the overall narrative of the season because mm-hmm. it's uh it's, like i would recommend the season as a whole 
Mm -hmm. um, especially like the whole bit about like words having power because uh, yeah, in in the finale, like some spoilers for for Doctor Who uh, new series series three, but the villain uh, is used like tries to use this big telepathic field to like mind control thousands millions of people. Um, mm. But uh, Martha is able to use the power of words and stories to turn that back around on him because they're all connected oh. by this telepathic yeah. field, and so, huh. and so by spreading like this this story, um, like she's able to get them to like to focus power back at him and, mm -hmm. and stop him, which is pretty cool. Yeah, and and I actually liked that aspect of it. Like I thought the like I thought that was really uh, that was a sort of like interesting way of uh, you know trying to like deal with like including witchcraft in this uh, you know this sort of universe. Like I actually thought the way they did that was kind of cool. Yeah. So that part that part is fun. That part I like. Yeah. Yeah. So as I said, I I really enjoyed the episode. There are just like these like bits here and there that I was a little like, mm. yeah. I mean, I I, mm. I think it's more good than bad, but I'm putting it at yeah. three point five for me. Yeah, that's fair. Well, thank you so much for joining me once again to talk Doctor Who on Media Evil. Yes, this is this is what I do. This is this is like <laughs> my idea of a good time. This is. <laughs> Yeah. So in addition to these episodes, are there other places where the listeners could find you on the internet? I've got a Tumblr. I'm Shadow Academic on Tumblr. Aside from that, not really. I'm, I'm in the Media Evil Facebook group. I post there occasionally, but like, I'm not super active on Facebook anymore. I don't think anyone really is. Yeah, that's about that's about it for me. All right, great. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review. I'll read new five-star reviews on future episodes. Uh, please also follow the podcast, uh, which for now is still on X. Uh, it is on my it is on my complicated to-do list to look into alternatives, and I just simply haven't had the time. Um, so for now, that is uh, that. And our Facebook group is uh, all we've got in terms of social media. But it is my my goal to uh, move from that. You can also find me, again, currently still on X, but potentially moving away from that. And on Instagram at Sarah Ifchdecker. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So, Lily, thank you again. Yeah, anytime. This is This is great. Yeah, and thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.